Welcome back to The Word is Resistance. This is the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about being in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression. These are the times in which we're living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white people about our role in resistance and in showing up for liberation? My name is Will Green, and this podcast is a project of Surge Faith. Surge is a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice. And this podcast is designed to be a resource for white people working to resist racism and white supremacy. That's why we're here. That's why we share and listen and learn together. This is all part of our work to resist racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback, and we especially appreciate feedback and accountability from listeners of color. To introduce myself, I'm a United Methodist pastor who lives on land that was inhabited by Penacook people before the Christian invasion of 1620. I'm a white, cisgender, gay man, pronouns he, him, his, who serves a congregation in so-called Andover, Massachusetts. In addition to ministry in my church setting, I'm also involved in the work of prison abolition. I believe in a world without prisons. In this episode, I'm going to be reflecting on two readings from the lectionary for Sunday, October 21st, 2018. Uh, There's a famous passage here from the prophet Isaiah, and something that's also well known from the gospel according to Mark. Both of these passages strike a similar theme about challenging assumptions about who's important and challenging assumptions about what it means to reflect God's priorities. That's the theme I'm going to be drawing out between these two readings. Who is important? Who's worthy of being paid attention to? Who are the people who reflect God's priorities, or gospel values, if you will? I've been thinking about this common theme in both of these passages, and how this theme relates to whiteness. That's the setup, so here we go. Thanks for listening. passage from Isaiah, I'm just going to read a list of words from the beginning of the reading. And I'm guessing you'll recognize the passage just from this list I've created. Not that the passage is a secret. The passage is Isaiah 53, 4 through 12. It's one of the alternative words, the alternative Old Testament reading from the lectionary for October 21st. Sometimes on these podcasts, I read the whole reading. Sometimes I don't. I'm just going to summarize and call the passage to mind with this list of key words. The words I'm going to read really set a mood all on their own. So here's the list of words from this lexionary passage in Isaiah 53. Here we go. Infirm, diseased, stricken, struck down, afflicted, wounded, crushed, punished, bruised, oppressed, afflicted. What a list. 
All of these words appear in the first four verses of this reading. Let me ask, how does that list make you feel? How do you receive that list? What assumptions or ideas or feelings come up for you when you hear this list read? I'm going to read it again. Think feeling reactions that come up for you as you hear these words. Infirm, diseased, stricken down, struck down, afflicted, wounded, crushed, punished, bruised, oppressed, afflicted. There it is. Okay, it's an unpleasant list, right? You probably need to breathe after hearing that. It's not uplifting. It's devastating. I didn't read the whole passage, but uh, just the same, you get the idea uh, that this is what we call a difficult passage. After reading a passage like this out loud on Sunday morning, it's sort of disorienting to hear the congregation say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks be to God is just not the sort of reaction that this list of words brings up for most people. But what's amazing about this list and this passage is that Despite the incredibly bad feeling it leaves us with, the list does not describe someone who is bad. The list does not describe uh, something that the narrator wants us to turn away from or distance ourselves from or not pay attention to. Instead, these words, that disturbing list that I just read, it describes someone who God wants us to pay attention to. Isn't that interesting? The list describes someone who has special priority and importance to God. You could even say that this passage is about God's chosen. Okay, so there's tension here between our feelings and our assumptions and God's feelings and God's assumptions, if you will. Our negative reaction of revulsion or discomfort is different from God's reaction of priority importance, proximity. Okay, so let me make the connection here between that theme, which all I'm calling our attention to, and the focus of this Surge Faith podcast. What does this theme have to do with whiteness? What does my observation about this list of words from Isaiah 53 have to do with white people showing up for racial justice? Okay, first of all, whiteness teaches us to judge, to pity, to condemn, to deny, to try to distance ourselves from the sort of conditions that are listed in Isaiah 53, okay? Whiteness teaches us a very different set of values and priorities than what we find in this list that describes God's chosen one. Whiteness teaches us to value health, Health in that ableist sense, where health means young, thin, able-bodied, stigma-free, unmedicated, independent. But those words certainly aren't words associated with God's chosen in Isaiah 53, are they? Do you get it? Whiteness teaches us that what is normative and what is desirable is basically the opposite of everything in this list that I've read. That's because the list of words I read represent all that really is counter to uh, the dominant ideologies valued by whiteness. And I'm just assuming here, as I say this, that people listening to this are people who are familiar with critiquing whiteness. If you're familiar with that, then you can recognize that this list from Isaiah 53 is a list of things that white people are not supposed to be. 
not supposed to like, not supposed to want. This reads like a, a list of things that we white people are supposed to shun, to be afraid of, to be ashamed of, and to work hard to avoid. But of course, as I said, in the context of the passage, this list is attributed to someone who is close to God. So I'm suggesting that this passage can be read to show that the construction of whiteness, very simply, is in conflict with the values and priorities of God. Whiteness, what it represents, what it values, what it strives for, what it pays attention to, what whiteness tries to accomplish. Whiteness is in conflict with the values and priorities of God. Big surprise, right? I'm suggesting a reclaiming of this passage, or a reading of this passage, as a, as a tool for resisting racism and white supremacy. Do you see how the scene from Isaiah 53 can refocus us? It can challenge us. It defines alternative values from the values of whiteness and white supremacy. Instead of that middle-class dream of whiteness that's independent, that's self-sufficient, that's safe and secure in that American way, this passage calls our attention to someone and some things that whiteness is not comfortable with. These are alternative values from the dominant ideology of whiteness. As we say in the intro, in this podcast, we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about being in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression. And here we have a sacred text calling us to identify not with the engineers of empire, but the enemies of empire. Not with the architects of tyranny, but the targets of tyranny. Not with people who violently repress others, but with those who suffer under empire, tyranny, violence, and repression. So I want to invite white people to read Isaiah 53 as a set of alternative values that confront whiteness and that offends the sensibilities that white people are taught to identify with. Just one possible way of reading Isaiah 53. So many other ways to come at this, but I'm trying to pull out that theme. And as I said, the gospel reading for October 21st from the 10th chapter of Mark also plays on a very similar theme. The reading from Mark is one of those stories, and there are many of them, where some of Jesus' most prominent disciples seem to completely misunderstand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And instead of ascribing to the way of life that Jesus is teaching, namely a, a life of selfless service, the disciples instead want recognition, they want power, and they want credit. So the reading is Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And again, to summarize... I'm not going to read the whole thing, but to summarize, this is, this is a story where James and John request special seating at Jesus's hand. And Jesus says to them, of course, no. And uh, to make the connection, once again, I would say, if you will, the disciples are embracing whiteness. By this, I mean they are looking out for themselves. They're trying to advance themselves. They're neglecting the teachings of Jesus because they think they somehow deserve to be treated better than everybody else just because. The disciples are bound to this ideology that separates them from the values of God. It puts them in conflict with the teachings of Jesus because they think they're special. 
This sounds like whiteness to me. Now, obviously, the disciples were not doing this on cultural or racial or Western or capital, capitalist grounds. I don't mean they were performing whiteness in those ways, though it is gendered. Notice that these are men who are asking for special treatment, and they think they deserve it just because of who they are. But uh, what I mean to say is that the disciples were being selfish. They were disconnected from others. They were willing to suspend their stated ethical norms because they thought it was more important that they get ahead. Again, things that people who have developed a critique of whiteness can identify as whiteness. All of these behaviors sound like characteristics of whiteness. Okay, I want to leave this there, and I want to invite us to sit with this conflict, this tension between whiteness and God's values. Both passages, we see it. I think at times, I think it might be too easy for white people to not sit with this conflict and instead to jump into a theological reflection that says something like, you know, sometimes it's too easy for us to jump into theological reflections that say something like, well, God doesn't want anybody to suffer, so we, we shouldn't say that God values these bad things in Isaiah 53 and that uh, Jesus in Mark 10 seems to be prioritizing. It, it can be too easy for white people to jump to abstract theological reflection. Do you know what sort of theological reflection I'm talking about? I'm talking about reading these stories and right away saying, well, God doesn't want bad things. God doesn't ordain bad things, so we shouldn't celebrate them and we shouldn't lift them up. I get that. Now, I, I, I agree with that. But I'm concerned with white people spending all of our reflective resources on that line of thinking, not because it isn't true or important, but because we can use this sort of theological reflection as a distraction from simply acknowledging how harmful whiteness is, how harmful our understanding of the world is. As white people. This is a fine line. God does not ordain suffering. It's true. God does not want people to experience what God's chosen one experiences in Isaiah 53. I totally believe that. But let's sit longer with the idea, with the feeling even, that whiteness is in conflict with God. Whiteness is in conflict with the witness of Jesus Christ. Whiteness puts white people like me in conflict with the priorities and values of the prophetic tradition. To go back to the question at the beginning of the podcast, what do our sacred stories have to teach us as white people about our role in resistance and in showing up for liberation? Well, I'm suggesting, of course, that we have here our sacred stories teaching us that whiteness and how it operates in the world is the problem. It alienates us from God. It alienates us from other people and from ourselves. I think that whiteness should, excuse me, excuse me, I misspoke. I think that Christianity should make you question whiteness. I don't know if it's possible to undo whiteness completely or to reject it. I suspect not. But the witness of scripture is in conflict with whiteness.
it, this should force us to question ourselves. Without getting into abstract theological reflection, I think it's important for us as white people to ask, are we able? That's imagery from the, from the Mark reading, Mark 10. I didn't ask that part, but Jesus asks uh, of James and John, he says, are you, are you able to drink from the cup from which I drink? Are we able? Speaking to white people like myself, we wonder, are we able to take up the cup? It's a big question for white people. Can we do better? Can we turn it around? Can we do this? Obviously, simply saying no is not a sufficient answer. It's, it can be easy for white people to say, well, we're morally maladjusted, and America is a messed up place, and that's that. Jesus tells the disciples to abandon their ambitions and to move into a different position in their social world. That's what Jesus tells the disciples to do. Specifically, he tells them to become slaves. And this is, of course, horrible, given the fact that none of the 12 actually were slaves. If Jesus were serious about this, I wonder, why didn't he actually live with slaves? Why did he call and send her fishermen instead of slaves? I don't know. I'm not going to go there. That's, that's too much for this little podcast. But realize that Jesus says to these self-centered men, who I say are acting white, he says, if you're serious about my teaching, you need to leave your position, your values, your understanding, and reject that so that you can relocate yourselves. So that's my analysis of these readings. I've just identified one theme shared in common between the two readings, and I'm trying to use that theme to ask questions of white people about our whiteness itself. And I hope you can take this invitation from these stories to reflect on these things. podcast, I'm supposed to try to point toward actions that listeners can take. And you know, I'm a prison abolitionist. I'm always talking about jail and prison and court. So I want to talk about court support and bailing people out, bailing people out of jail. First, a story. Uh, this week, I spent a lot of time in court waiting to post bail to get someone out. It took too much time. It always does. I'm actually even recording this podcast three days later than I wanted to because my schedule got so fucked up by trying to bail this uh, person out. It worked eventually. But uh, the first time I went to court to bail this person out, it turned out that the person I was there to support, I was there to bail out, wasn't even there. He was still in the county jail. I couldn't believe it. When I got there and he wasn't on the docket for the day or anything, the lawyer was supposed to submit a habeas and that didn't happen. Paperwork. It sucks to realize that uh, if we don't do our paperwork the right way, then people sit in jail longer. It's terrible. It happens all the time. probably happens every day. Paperwork mistakes. The result is people suffer. So we got the lawyer to file the habeas, and I went back a second time. And he wasn't there again, uh, not because of paperwork this time, but because the county sheriff's van that was transporting him was stuck in traffic. 
What gets me is that if you are late for court on your own for a criminal hearing because of traffic, the judge will issue a warrant for your arrest. Yes, it can be withdrawn later, but still, if you get held up in traffic, a warrant will be issued for your arrest. And th this is called the justice system, okay? If you get stuck in traffic, a warrant will issue for your arrest. But what happens if the state gets stuck in traffic? What happens if the sheriff, if the sheriff's van gets stuck in traffic? You know what happens. Not a damn thing. Nobody cares. They can be late. They can be late, but you can't be. It's unfair. There's grace for the jailers, but there is no grace for the people. Anyways, this is what happened the second time I went. I didn't mind waiting myself, I, but I did know that all this meant that the person I was trying to get out on Monday, who's only being held in jail because he can't afford to pay bail, he's going to be held even longer and longer, more suffering. As I waited... Uh, I had time to go out to my car to make a phone call. Of course, cell phones aren't allowed in court. Sort of. Law cell phones aren't allowed in court for you and me. Lawyers and court staff, they can have phones, but people going in front of a judge can't. Double standard again. It's unfair and absurd. Okay, here's what I'm getting at. Always a long story with a preacher. I went to my car and called someone who had left me a voicemail, and they asked me where I was, and I told them I'm at district court. I'm waiting for someone to be brought here who's in custody. The second time I've been here, the person didn't have money to post bail. So I'm posting this person out. And it's so unfair because of paperwork mistakes and traffic. This person is uh, going through more and more worse stuff. The person I was talking to on the phone is not someone who has an abolitionist perspective. It's, it's not someone who is comfortable or practiced in critiquing whiteness. What do you think the person I was talking to on the phone asked me when I said I was bailing someone out of jail? What do you think their first question was when I told them this little story? They didn't ask about the bail system or the injustice of it. Their first question they asked me right away, almost like a reflex when I said what I was doing. They said, what did he do wrong? What did he do wrong? I hate that question. By what did he do wrong, what they meant was what law did he break or why was he arrested or what legal reason does the justice system give for keeping him in a cage? I hate that question. I, of course, maybe not of course, but I make a point of not knowing the answer to that question, of never finding out the answer. And my answer to that question is always the same. I always say, I don't know. You know, it doesn't matter. Okay, <laughs> now to connect this to the Bible passages, I think the question, what did he do wrong? I think that's a very, I think that is a very white response to the list of words from Isaiah 53 I read at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, think of think of the, the passage from Isaiah, that description of suffering and hardship. I can imagine someone living under the veil of whiteness, hearing that reading and asking immediately, like a reflex, that's terrible, what did he do wrong? That's a, a perfectly white response to the reading. I mean, just, just think of what happens in life. Someone gets beaten, and whiteness wants us to ask, oh, what did they do wrong? Someone gets killed. Whiteness wants us to ask, what did they do wrong? Someone gets hurt or punished or struck down. Whiteness wants us to ask, well, what did they do wrong? 
Whiteness always wants us to ask, what did they do wrong? I think whiteness does people wrong. It makes people think that we can judge. It distances us from our humanity. It makes us not connect with other people. It makes us not connect with ourselves. It tries to desensitize us to reality. This list, you know, infirm, disease, stricken, struck down, afflicted, wounded, crushed, punished, bruised, oppressed, afflicted. I, now, I know that people who aren't white have faults and make mistakes and do, do things wrong. Of course, my point is not that white people are the worst people, but we need to address our limitations and confront whiteness. So... Pointing towards an action you can take. I think I snuck in a little more reflection there. Pointing towards an action you can take. Support a bail fund. The money I posted at court this week came from the Mass Bail Fund. That's Mass as in the shortened form of the word Massachusetts. But there are so many awesome bail funds all over the place. Just go on Twitter and search the words bail fund and you will find them all over the map. Follow them and then connect. Of course, if you have money to share, give money. Money gets people out of jail. It's that simple. People are in jail because no one can share money with them. If you don't have money, you can volunteer to be the person, uh, you know, who brings the cash to get the person out of jail. Uh, go to court with people. Do court support. Drive the car. Give somebody a ride. We need people doing that too. Connect in that way. And if you, a, a much simpler, if you can't do those things, or even if you can do those things, don't ask what people did wrong when you find out they're suffering. Ask how whiteness is doing us all wrong. Hold whiteness up against scripture and see how the priorities and values of God can help us challenge whiteness. Scripture can be a wonderful antidote to white supremacy. Sometimes, not always, there's plenty of triumphalism in scripture for sure. There are oppressive things in the Bible and in the Christian tradition. Sometimes, you know, we need to reject what scripture says and what it seems to be offering us. But for today, here's my conclusion. Find God's story in the infirm, diseased, stricken, struck down, afflicted, wounded, crushed, punished, bruised, oppressed, and afflicted. Thank you for joining me. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search the word is resistance. You can interact with us there. Transcripts are available on our website. As always, the music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for a movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. We are